0: Making Sense of the Digital Society A podcast with answers to the big questions of digitalization For everyone who wants to be in the know about the many debates But we are not only trying to make sense of the digital society We are also demystifying some of its buzzwords Making Sense of the Digital Society is also a series of live lectures in Berlin that I have moderated since early 2018. My name is Toby Müller and I am the presenter of this podcast. We cover a wide range of questions such as how do we want to actively shape a digital world? How can these processes be aligned with public interest? What kind of knowledge do we need for this? What are the underlying changes in society beyond the hype over new technological developments? What is power in the digital society and how is it distributed? Do services fueled by algorithms and artificial intelligence improve our lives or do they enforce social inequalities? And what role do cities play in this transformation like infrastructure and public goods? We combine summaries from the lecture series Making Sense of the Digital Society and conversations with international experts. You will hear renowned scientists talk about their research and discuss key issues. Their topics are diverse. Complex problems need attention from various disciplines in order to come closer to an understanding of the time we live in now and want to live in tomorrow. The processing and use of our data traces online has led to an all-encompassing transformation of our economic system. In this episode, this is exactly what will be addressed – we will approach the social difficulties associated with the digital economy. Are the changes in our economic system so fundamental that they have led to the emergence of a new form of capitalism? This is indeed the argument of the U.S.-American Harvard professor Shoshana Suboff, who describes this new form of capitalism as surveillance capitalism. With the term, she describes a new subspecies of capitalism in which profits derive from the unilateral surveillance and modification of human behavior. Technology users are thus no longer customers, but the raw material for an entirely new economic system. Shoshana Subov is an economist and author of three books, each of which has been recognized as the definitive signal of a new epoch in technological society. Zuboff joined Harvard Business School in 1981, where she became one of the first tenured women on the Harvard Business School faculty. Her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power, became an international best and long seller after its publication in 2018. We will now hear excerpts from a talk, Surveillance Capitalism and Democracy, given in November 2019.
1: What is surveillance capitalism? It rests on the discovery that private human experience was to be the last virgin wood available for extraction, production, commodification, and sales. People, that means us, we did become chattel, for commerce. That's exactly what happened. And the results are shaking democracy to its core. They're transforming our daily lives. They're challenging the social contracts that we've inherited from the enlightenment and indeed threatening the very viability of human freedom, just as was predicted under siege though it may be, the only possible remedy for all of this is democracy. And that's why we're here tonight, of course. So I think about it this way a little bit. You know the story of Alice in Wonderland, yes? Everybody know the story of Alice in Wonderland? And you remember the white rabbit who had the clock and he was rushing and uh, I'm late, I'm late for a very important date, and he goes down the rabbit hole. Well, the way I think about it is uh, two decades ago, we were all Alice, and we encountered the white rabbit, and he was rushing down his hole, and just like Alice, we rushed after him. We followed the white rabbit into Wonderland. What happened in Wonderland? In Wonderland, there are various things that we learned and it took us two decades to learn them. Okay, first of all, we learned that we can search Google. We search Google. But now, two decades later, there is a fragile new awareness dawning And it's occurring to us that it's not so much that we search Google, it's that Google searches us. In Wonderland, we assumed that we use social media. But now, we've begun to understand that social media uses us. We thought that these are great free services while these companies were thinking, these are great people who are free, free raw material for our new operations of analysis, production, and sales. We barely questioned why our television sets or our mattresses came with privacy policies. But now we're beginning to understand that privacy policies are actually surveillance policies. We admired the tech giants as innovative companies. Innovative companies, by the way, who occasionally made some big mistakes, and those mistakes violated our privacy. The difference now is that we're beginning to understand that those mistakes actually are the innovations. Those mistakes are the innovations. In Wonderland, we learn to believe that privacy is private. We failed to reckon with the profound distinction between a society that cherishes principles of individual sovereignty and one that lives by the social relations of the one-way mirror. Privacy is not private. Privacy is a collective action problem. Privacy is a political challenge. Privacy is about the kind of society that we live in. Finally, our most dangerous illusion of all in Wonderland, We believe that the internet offered unprecedented access to proprietary knowledge. But in the harsh glare of surveillance capitalism, we have come to learn that proprietary knowledge now has unprecedented access to us. Surveillance capitalists sell certainty. So they're competing on their predictions. So let's reverse engineer these competitive dynamics and see what we find. Well, number one, everybody knows an AI needs a lot of data, right? Everybody knows that. So the first thing is economies of scale drives them toward totalities of information. We need data at scale. Okay, that's an easy one. Competing on scale is good but not good enough because eventually they realize, hey, you know what? We need a lot of data, but we also need varieties of data. Now we know that we need economies of scale, but we also need variety, so we need economies of scope, different kinds of data. Now, even though you're not old enough to remember the dot-com bust, many of you are old enough to remember the mobility revolution. Right, So this is the idea that we give you a a little computer, you put it in your pocket, and you go. We'll we'll, we'll call it a phone, what the heck. And uh, it will go everywhere with you, and now we can get economies of scope, like where you are, and uh, what you're talking about, and who you're with, and um, what transactions you're making, and maybe, where you're eating and what you're eating and um, who you're emailing or texting or what kind of uh, browsing you're doing while you're uh, walking in the park or walking through the city. Um, We can get your voice. We can get all kinds of things now. Oh, and don't forget, what's the most important thing of all that we can get with this new computer? We can get your face. We can get all your faces. Okay. Okay. So, we've got economies of scale and economies of scope. Prediction continues to evolve and competition continues to intensify. And pretty soon there's a new realization. The most predictive data comes from intervening in your behavior, intervening in the state of play in order to actually nudge, coax, tune, herd your behavior, in the direction of the outcomes that we are guaranteeing to our business customers. Hurting your behavior in the direction of our revenues and ultimately our profits, okay. Because what is new here is that at no other time in history have the wealthiest private corporations had at their disposal a pervasive global architecture of ubiquitous computation, able to amass unparalleled concentrations of information about individuals, groups, and populations, sufficient to mobilize the pivot from the monitoring to the actuation of behavior remotely and at scale. This, my friends, is unprecedented. What is this new power? It works its will through the medium of digital instrumentation. It's not sending anybody to our homes at night to take us to the gulag or the camp. It's not threatening us with murder or terror. It is not totalitarian power but it is a new and unprecedented form of power, just as totalitarianism presented itself as a new and unprecedented power in the 20th century. This new power is what I call instrumentarian power. It works its will remotely. It comes to us secretly, quietly, and if we ever know it's there, it might actually greet us with a cappuccino and a smile. <laughs> Nevertheless, it represents a global means of behavioral modification and is the engine of growth for surveillance capitalism. Okay, so here we, we've we now climbed a mountain, We've climbed the mountain of the division of learning. And we've peeked inside the fortress, into the AI hub, into these backstage operations. And what have we found? A frontier operation, run by geniuses, funded by immense amounts of capital. Are they solving the climate crisis? Are they curing cancers? Are they figuring out how to get rid of all those plastic particles that now even are detectable in the Arctic snow? No, they're not doing any of that. Instead, all of that genius and all of that capital is dedicated to knowing everything about us and pivoting that knowledge to the remote control of people for profit. I don't like that. This is how the age of surveillance capitalism becomes an age of conquest. So, you know, we're meant to sleepwalk through all of this. We're meant to be ignorant. This is engineered for our ignorance. Mark Zuckerberg says privacy is the future. Very confusing. So now we're living in a time when we understand that privacy is a collective action problem. And we have to look now to only one source for remedies here. And that source is democracy. That means law. And that means new regulatory paradigms. And when we're talking with Toby, we can get into more details on this but I want to call your attention to at least two things that I think are immediately important and um, once we start talking about them and begin to get used to them a little bit in our imaginations, they won't sound as strange as they might sound when I say them right now. The key thing that confronts us here is to interrupt the incentives for the surveillance dividend. We essentially need to outlaw the surveillance dividend. Once we do that, we open up the competitive space for the thousands and hundreds of thousands and indeed millions of young people, entrepreneurs, companies who want to produce digital products and services that will address climate, that will address our real needs, that will cure the cancers that plague us, that will do all of the things that we once expected from the digital. But they will be able to do them without having to compete on the surveillance dividend. That's what we need. So, Two things I want to suggest. One is that we interrupt supply, and the other is that we interrupt demand. By interrupting supply, I mean that the illegitimate, secret, unilateral taking of human experience for translation into data should be illegal. The surveillance capitalists have fought. This fight that you heard about in 1997 continues literally every day. They have fought for the right to take our faces whenever and wherever they want to. They take our faces on the street. They take our faces in the park. They take our faces when and wherever they want to. Our faces go into their facial recognition systems. Facial recognition systems train data sets, data sets we now find out often sold to military operations, military divisions, including those military operations that are imprisoning members of the Uyghur minority in central China in an open-air prison where the only walls are facial recognition systems. That's what I mean by the way, privacy is not private. Okay, so we interrupt supply. The next thing that we can do is interrupt demand. And that means we eliminate the incentives to sell predictions of human behavior. How do we do that? We make markets that trade in human futures illegal. Other markets are illegal. Markets that trade in human organs are illegal. Why? Because they have predictably destructive consequences for people and for democracy. Markets that trade in human slaves are illegal because they have predictably destructive consequences. Markets that trade in human babies are illegal because they have predictably destructive consequences. Markets that trade in human futures should be illegal because first, they are the enemies of human autonomy because their competitive dynamics require economies of action for which human agency is the enemy. And second, because they inevitably produce the extreme asymmetries of knowledge and the power that accrues to knowledge that create epistemic inequality and epistemic injustice. Surveillance capitalists are rich and powerful, but they are not invulnerable. They have an Achilles heel. Do you know what that is? They fear law. They fear lawmakers who are not confused and and intimidated, but ultimately they fear you. They fear citizens who are ready to demand a digital future that we can call home. Thank you.
0: One of the biggest problems Sir Shana Subov just outlined is that surveillance capitalism is unimpeded by law. That's how companies have access to our faces, movements and behaviors, and use all of this information to increase profits. So we are aware that the consumer isn't part of the economy is steeped in digital spheres. But how about the other side of the economy, apart from consumption and surveillance? How does and will digitalization change the way we work? In order to find out, we have to examine an old term and see how it unfolds today, labor. Florian Butolo will guide us through this task. Florian Butolo studied sociology at Goethe University in Frankfurt and was a research assistant at the Chair of Sociology of Labor, Industry and Economics at the University of Jena. His dissertation, The End of Cheap Labor, Industrial Transformation and Social Upgrading in China, has received several awards. As of fall 2018, he's a member of the Enquête Commission of the German Bundestag on Artificial Intelligence, Social Responsibility and Economic, Social and Ecological Potentials. His research focuses on the relationship between technological change and changes in the working world in Germany and China. Florian Butolo and I arranged a video call for this conversation you're going to hear right now. From very far away... The general question would be, Florian, what do we talk about when we talk about AI and labor? Do we talk about structural change or do we talk about mass unemployment still, the fear of the 90s? Well,
2: first of all, we're talking about a, a set of new technologies that is providing tremendous possibilities to uh, do work more effectively, to uh, analyze data, to support Uh, workers function in various ways, so there is a lot of change happening, but there's also a big misunderstanding um, in the debate. The fear of mass unemployment is based on the assumption that because of the technological options alone, such technologies would be implemented and could replace work as such. And if we have a more realistic account um, the implementation of technology not only depends on abstract capabilities of those technologies, but it must pay off for enterprises. And this is a much more difficult thing. I give you one example. The famous study by uh, Frey and Osborne on the automation of work gives the uh, probability of the replacement of sewing workers in garment production for 99%. So. That might be true if we only look at theoretical options of sewing robots. But if you look at this more concretely, the sewing process is really highly, very complicated to automate because workers are treating soft materials. There's a very high variety of styles and, well, your hands, workers use their hands a lot. And that's a very difficult thing to do for robots. So those robots would be very expensive compared to work in the government industry that is very cheap. So although the like abstract probability of replacement might be 99%, at the moment I'd say the probability is perhaps, or the, the replacement of sewing work would perhaps account for 1% of workers maximum. And that is the tremendous misunderstanding in this whole debate. So we're only looking at the technologies and not at the economic and social processes that actually determine
0: whether automation happens or not this had been or maybe still is quite a dominant fear of this widespread discourse. I think that we always talk about replacement or substitution of work, much less about, um, you know, outsourcing and the distribution of labor, so to speak. Does this have to do with the 90s? Uh, you've written about this, about CIM, computer integrated manufacturing, that has been heavily promoted in the 90s, but eventually sort of stalled. We might also say failed even in some sorts. Does it have to do with this.
2: I think it's a recurring theme that goes way back before the 90s, right? I mean, Marx wrote about the option of, you know, surplus population and the reserve army of labor due to technological change. Keynes talked about technological unemployment. And we have since the 50s in recurring waves, the fear of the robot replacing everyone. If we look at the economic history, the rate of employment is higher than ever before. You know, especially you know, in the post-war history, we have more workers doing work than before. So there is a misunderstanding because while there is a substitution of tasks and automation is happening, there's no doubt about it, that happened a lot of automation during history. Um, while that is taking place, the economy is getting more complex, more diverse, more flexible, and it needs a lot of work to do that. In other words, if you take the auto industry as an example, if we still would drive around with a four T model of the 1920s, right, the black car, very standardized, very simple, full automation would have happened already. But we have now way more complicated cars in a, a huge variety of styles with very high technological inputs. And so this consumes work in a broad variety of functions, although... Certain functions in car production are already happening in a full automated way, but the total employment has not declined because the product has always changed
0: and the industry has become more complicated. Uh, That's very interesting. Definitely. I mean, the fear of machines has always been there, talking about the Luddites in England or the Maschinenstürmer, as they were called in Germany in the mid-19th century, early 19th century. even Um, That's for sure. But I was thinking about, you know, computer integrated manufacturing, actually, that this fear sort of resurfaced or even intensified um, when computers came into play. Just a quick glance back at those 19. What actually happened, we see IM, computer integrated manufacturing, that some say it failed or it never took on that scale as people sort of thought it would take eventually in the 90s. What happened there? Why did it stall?
2: There was the hope that you would be able to, as the name say, integrate all the information layer in a factory in one single system. And the technological capabilities at that time relied on central programming a lot. So there was no internet, there was no uh, cybernetics in production, you know, to the ability to source data and to project the analysis back and to constantly modify processes. So these automation approaches became very unflexible and too phlegmatic to deal with a rapidly changing economic environment. And it turned out to be very expensive too expensive. The saying then was that you had sim ruins and those very ambitious engineering heavy approaches failed. The thing is, on the one hand, it failed. On the other hand, there are continuities to what has happened now and a lot of the integration at the information level. So if you're talking about ERP systems, or MES systems that are used for controlling production, they proliferated during that period. So it would be too simple to say it just failed. But this approach to say we jumped to full automation by a comprehensive integrating of the whole factory turned out to be too unflexible and too expensive at that time. But it's interesting to, to view this history of industrial change as a trial and error history, right, where certain approaches would try to establish and it failed then, but now it can perhaps uh, become a reality by by other means. Interesting, the
0: metaphors you used was controlling production, right, steering production and not substituting or replacing production, so to speak, as we've just discussed before, that um, complex. Could we say then that one of the problems actually in this discourse is not the you know, replacement of work. But what comes in there is, of course, wages, a problem that has not really been solved in the last 20 or 30 years. You say there's a continuation of processes that actually comes from CIM. Or we just talked about uh, But wages are a totally different subject there. Where do wages come in? I mean, one of our speakers in our series Making Sense of the Digital Society, Giovanna Bryson, said, uh, it's not about work, it's about wages. Wages, well,
2: Work is always about wages from a management perspective. right? So the question is a lot about how to keep the costs of labor in check. And of course, modern equipment can help to do this in various ways. I mean, we have a tremendous range of new technologies to monitor work, to control work by algorithmic means and this is especially valid if we look at fields where individual work performance counts where i mean standardized work that can be quantified where individual performance counts these are the fields where algorithmic management is being pioneered you know i mean delivery riders for instance who are really virtually under control of the IT infrastructure and are rated all the times they can be cut off employment by algorithmic means, just being being kicked out of the platform and so on. If we look at logistic workers, the famous pickers at Amazon or Zalando that are guided by algorithms and so on, this is one way. But um, this only accounts for a certain share of the total employment, right? Not all digital technologies are Implemented in order to directly control and discipline work. There's also the incentive to introduce technologies to support work in the sense that additional information is provided during the work process, which means that people with less work experience can be hired. And this is a very important development in. Germany and many countries in Europe at the moment because of demographic change, because we have labor shortages all over the place. By the way, if we talk about mass unemployment, we have to keep in mind that dominant tendency are labor shortages, not, not surplus population, right? Not, not a reserve army problematic. So there is a shortage of skilled work. And those generations that have been trained for many years that have lots of work experience are retiring. And uh, so what you can have is that with assistance system, you hire people that have less work experience, um, not necessarily paid less, we have to say, but they can be introduced into their
0: jobs easier and also potentially substituted easier. The magic word when it comes to AI and production, of course, now is industry 4.0. Let us explore a bit what this term actually entails. Um, sophisticated production technology or rather, and now I quote an article of yours and Leah messers I quote, platform mediated factory networks. In these, flexibility is facilitated rather by the digital interconnection of a far flung network of small scale manufacturers. Factuous. Quote end. Can you tell us more about this juxtaposition of production technology versus platform-mediated networks?
2: We criticize the one-sidedness of the Industry 4.0 discourse, right? And we juxtapose a different paradigm, which is the network. And the network is much more appropriate to characterize the period of technological change that we're living in or that we're witnessing because it's about the Internet of Things. It's about connecting data. It's not about the robot, right? And so what you have in the Industry 4.0 discourse, first of all, is the metaphor of an industrial revolution, which I think is bogus. So I don't see that industrial revolution, this rupture with the past. I see rather incremental change in various ways, new technological opportunities, but not one single paradigm or one single rupture with the past, right? But what this industry 4.0 um, uh, narrative says is we now are able to uh, produce a high variety of goods without the loss of um, efficiency because of smart factories. So, highly automated, engineering heavy. Factories that can churn out everything the customer wants in an instant because the production technology is so advanced And what we found in our empirical research is of course on the one hand that many companies Especially in Germany are pursuing such an orientation that is given by industry 4.0 But there's also something completely different and these are B2B platforms So business to business platforms that connect industrial buyers with small-scale producers and the platform is playing a matchmaking function just like an e-commerce. So, companies would order spare parts or replacement parts, supply parts, and give their contracts to the platform where there is a matching supplier which can deliver. So, these suppliers not necessarily are technologically advanced, but due to the distribution through the platform, is a very versatile model. So the goal that is pursued with Industry 4.0 to receive a high variety of goods at a reasonable price on an instant is mediated through the platform because the platform model provides this flexibility that is needed in order to quickly order a high variety of goods in small quantities and so on. So this is what we found that you know, beneath the discourse of Industry 4.0, you find completely new network based business or platform based business models that achieve what Industry 4.0
0: promises by totally different means. There's a hell of a lot of infrastructure that is needed for this kind of factory-based models, I would assume, uh, you know, hardware as well as software. We talk about hardware, talk about cloud services, of course, which is a certain European initiative to build those cloud services that are, to some extent, to a large extent, hopefully independent of like Amazon cloud services, even of Chinese competitors in that field. That's one thing. The other would be software, which would probably be easier to mount, actually, uh, what we see now. Now, My question would be where does the state come in there in this whole play of factory-based networks when we talk about actually hardware infrastructure, which cloud services of course are. We're talking about servers that are decentralized, so to speak, uh, and that stay in Europe. Is this a return of the state when we talk about factory networks? Not at all, no.
2: These are startups that are just buying cloud capacities just like everyone else, you know, and so far it's it's not very complicated. I mean, you're right that it requires a lot of resources in terms of the servers, that uh, server parks that are hidden somewhere in, you know, computing centers and so on, uh, that consume loads of energy, of course, you know. But it's market-based. You just can buy access to cloud capacities. That's a business process, you know. I mean, uh, companies like AWS and so on, they also don't just get the data that is promoted, that is exchanged there, right? They make a business by hiring out a service. And the algorithms that do the matchmaking, I mean, this is really no rocket science. This is what has been established for a very long time in e-commerce. It's just the business idea is just to do that in manufacturing and to enter a new a new business field. So there's no state here. What is interesting is first of all, the debate that you allude to in Germany, in Europe, about getting independent on the infrastructure layer, so about a European cloud and so on, that's the debate about Gaia X particularly, right, uh, with the effort to uh, somehow introduce a layer that is guaranteeing European standards of data security, by the way, without kicking AWS out, right? This is not about building an alternative to Amazon Web Services. It is just uh, to make it like a layer to make this uh, more secure. That's how it was
0: promoted at some time, but it didn't turn out that
2: way. I mean, that would require an industrial policy effort that would go way beyond what we've seen during the last couple of years, you know, because I mean, Amazon developed this huge infrastructural power as a byproduct of its e commerce business, they needed uh, lots of storage for data and uh, flexibly. At peak times, they needed a lot. At low times, they didn't. So they started hiring out services. If you build that from scratch, that's billions and billions and billions of investment. Of course, yeah. it could be an option, but that's not the way it was viewed at the moment, right? Yeah. The very interesting thing is I mean, that's the debate that is all over the place. Now, platforms infrastructure shouldn't it be public? Right, And that accounts for service. I would very much agree that these should be publicly owned because it's the infrastructure of the digital age just as much as, you know, roads and railways in the 19th century. Exactly. But it also accounts to the platforms that coordinate enterprises, that provide software for enterprises and so on, where things are exchanged. These should be at least not owned by single enterprises, but should be like a corporatist approach by many firms um, and perhaps under guidance of the state um, in order to secure that this is serving actually the purpose of the eight actors involved and not being used to just
0: uh, build the power of platforms as private companies. We just have a couple of minutes left, but we have to talk about inequality when we talk about factory networks, when we talk about Industry 4.0. Of course, we've talked a little bit about wages. One of the downsides, uh, you explore that a little bit in your papers as well, when you talk about Industry 4.0 is price, or one of the dangers, actually, that the price is going to you know hit rock bottom or it's going to be lower in these kind of networks. What are we going to do about this? And then we look at history now, but, uh, you know, many technological boosts in the 19th century have led to staggering numbers of inequality, actually. And when we look at um, solutions that tried to fix this, it was usually the state. When we talk about the New Deal in the US, uh, of course, and we also talk about wars. That wars actually reduced inequality a great deal right in the aftermath where people actually thought oh it's going to be terrible it actually went up uh, wages went up economy went up and so forth so now when we talk about inequality we talk a lot about technology actually fixing inequality that caused it in the first place or so it seems to me how are we going to tackle this problem in the future can we learn something from history there
2: yes and no i mean i would say we can learn from history that exactly that a more equal distribution of wealth is not just an issue of industrial change and progress right i mean we have the experience that unregulated capitalism led to extreme inequality uh, in the 19th century before the world wars and so on uh, societal um, like conflict and frictions on a tremendous scale and what actually changed thing was a combination of social movements and policies by the state. But these policies were always pushed by below, by mass resistance, by workers, but also political movements that were sort of providing the clout to actually reform the system. So that is, I think, something that is relevant now as much as it was then. But then again, we have a completely new situation with the climate change that is like a crisis of civilization to an extent that we haven't had before, right? Which is overlapping social and economic crises. So we have multiple crises that require a comprehensive reorientation of the economy. And what that means is that we need to depart from a course that is still guided by growth for growth's sake, right? So growth by any means necessary meaning an acceleration of social relations, intensification of work, burnout society. It means people being left behind. It creates divisions between rich and poor that are escalating on a global scale and a national scale. We need to have a comprehensive effort to change that, meaning looking at work not only in the sense of what is functional and what helps to do work more efficiently, but looking at the human side of it, looking at health issues, looking how we can like decelerate work and make it less intense. And this needs to be combined with a debate and a discussion and an effort to change economic orientations that are just geared at doing more um, in less time and a cheaper price. Right? I see a huge combination between the factors that, you know, and dangerous civilization in the ecological sense and the pathologies that we see at the workplace in terms of burnout societies, stressful work and social inequalities.
0: So to end this conversation on a quick note, try to agree or disagree with me. uh, Am I right in saying that the future is going to be about not more work, but less work? The future is about less work that
2: is distributed in a more equal way. That would be the ideal scenario, not because of automation, but just that we learn to focus our work on what is essential and not mainly about what brings money. So if we do that, we need to work less. And if we distribute that equally, we really can have a society which is much more just and livable.
0: Thank you, Florian Butolo. I enjoyed this very much.
2: Thank you as well. Me too.
0: If you are intrigued by the discussion about the digital impact on labor, you also may be interested in the concept paper on digital commons. In digital commons, the resources are data, information, and knowledge that are created and or maintained online collectively. The article presents the history of the digital commons movement from free software, free culture, and public domain works to open data and open access to science. It then analyzes the basic dimensions, licensing, authorship, peer production, governance, and finally examines newer forms of the digital commons. All materials mentioned in this podcast and a large number of other interesting resources can be found at hiig.de slash making minus sense and bpb.de slash digital society in one word making sense of the digital society is a production of the Alexander von Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society and the Federal Agency for Civic Education my name is Toby Müller and I hope you have enjoyed this podcast editing and production Christian Graufogel and Filine Janus executive producer Christian Graufogel Sound design and recording: Yuri Bada.